Hi, everyone, and thank you for joining us for the second annual live recording of the Hollywood Reporters Awards Chatter podcast here at the Newport Beach Film Festival. I'm the host, Scott Feinberg, and my guest today for our 508th episode overall is one of the most understated and also one of the most successful and influential figures in the world of music. And he has been for some 25 years, even though he's only 48. As we will discuss, he was one of the first and biggest celebrity DJs, a new phenomenon in the 1990s, and he then transitioned into making music, becoming one of the most in-demand producers in the business. Indeed, he has worked alongside the likes of Amy Winehouse, Bruno Mars, Lady Gaga, Paul McCartney, Adele, and so many other great artists. Along the way, he has received 12 Grammy nominations, seven of which have resulted in wins, including for Producer of the Year and twice for Record of the Year, the latter coming for his collaboration with Amy Winehouse, Rehab, and for his collaboration with Bruno Mars, Uptown Funk. He was also recognized with the Best Original Song Oscar and Golden Globe for a collaboration with Lady Gaga, Shallow. In 2018, he established his own label, Zelig Records, an imprint of Columbia Records, and formed the duo Silk City with fellow producer Diplo. And this year, he took his biggest steps yet into the world of music for film with Greta Gerwig's Barbie, the soundtrack of which he executive produced, the score of which he co-wrote, and a number of the songs of which he co-wrote and or co-produced, including the Dua Lipa single Dance the Night, the Billie Eilish and Phineas single What Was I Made For, the Lizzo single Pink, the Sam Smith single Man I Am, and yes, the Ryan Gosling single I'm Just Ken. Would you please join me in welcoming Mark Ronson. Hi there. Thanks so much for being here. Thank you for that lovely Well, thank you for being here. It's been uh, a lot of travel and hustling that you're doing at the moment, so thanks for squeezing this in. And to begin with, I just want to let people know, can you share where you were born and raised to kind of, uh, it's not as straightforward as it is for most people, and just also what your folks did for a living, which sort of connects back to all of this. Yeah, so I was born in England many years ago, and, uh, and then my mom and dad, uh, my mom and dad split, and we moved to New York with my, with my mom, and she married this great ram, my stepfather, who was in the rock band Foreigner, and he wrote lots of great songs. He actually wrote the song, I Want to Know What Love Is, for, for my mom. Yes. So, talk about setting the bar high, like, like <laughs> when you were a kid, you know? Like, um, and then, uh, and so I grew up in, in New York, you know, in this house of, where music was very alive. And my mother was quite strict. She was English. She was from Liverpool. It was always like, get your studies done and all that stuff first. But then I was able to tinker around in my stepdad's recording studio. And that was a, that was a great opportunity. So as early, well, let's first talk about, as a kid, what kind of music were you particularly into? What were you gravitating towards? Um, I, my first favorite band was Duran Duran because it was just the 80s and I, I loved that. And then uh, when I was... Uh, I guess uh, I got really into hip-hop because I was in New York and this was in the early 90s and so this were things like um, EPMD, Tribe Called Quest, Wu-Tang and that got me really into this music and I 
that's when I became a DJ because I was like, I love this music so much. I want to be able to express myself somehow. I, I don't know how to rap. So I'm going to, I got turntables and taught myself how to do that. So even before the DJing began, which began at a very early age, a couple other things happened that we got to talk about. At the age of 12, how did you wind up as the youngest ever intern at Rolling Stone magazine? And what did that job entail? Um, yeah, I was the youngest ever intern at Rolling Stone. Um, I think I was, they let me work the switchboard sometimes, and I remember my voice hadn't broken yet, so I remember I would answer the phone and be like, hello, Rolling Stone! <laughs> um, and then uh, I was just such a voracious fan of, of music, and I would read liner notes and magazines and trade publications, sort of weird stuff for a 12-year-old. And, um, and my, my mother was friends with the Jane Wenner who had started Rolling Stone and, and I, you know, a Nepo baby or, or Stepo baby that I was. Um, I, got, I got a job there and I worked there for three summers and I, I, I loved it. I loved everything about like watching how the magazine came together, how they, how they made the charts, you know, by calling all the different record stores to get the top tens because it wasn't like now where you just, you know from streaming what it is. You had to, anyway, yeah. I love that, though. Did you say Steppo, baby? I've never heard that before. Yeah, yeah. Just, okay. <laughs> now, at 16, you were part of a band that gets signed to Polygram. That's not the experience of too many 16-year-olds. At that point, your, your idea was that you were going, the dream was to be a rock star, right, yourself. I think so. I mean, I, I loved, you know, I, I loved Guns N' Roses, and I, and I played guitar, and I was in a band with a guitar player who was much better than me so that was sort of sobering i was like maybe this isn't my path but you know when you're 15 you just want to be on stage and like that looks so cool you want to be slash and then i sort of figured out slowly that maybe there was another path for me closer to something like producing and being behind the boards and stuff. You, i think you've said there was even like a, i don't know if it's the same friend from the band but somebody at an unusually early age kind of saw that in you that you know what don't worry as much about pursuing guitar or whatever. You could be a producer. Yeah. It was my best friend, Alex Kane, and I hated him at the time because <laughs> I was telling him how I wanted to be like in a rock band and do all this stuff. And he was like, oh, really? Because I just picture you being like more behind the boards. And I was like, screw you, Alex. You don't know. Like hung up the phone. But um, he was totally right. So sorry, Alex. I'm apologizing now. Well, it was not that long after that, I think... 1993, you're like 17 or 18, and you start DJing in clubs. You're not yet even old enough to drink in these clubs, but you're there basically setting the, the scene for all these older people that are, but, but having a sense of what they might be into. And I just, I guess to begin with, how do you even wind up DJing for the first time, I think, at a place called Club USA? Yeah, um, I just... I, I think it goes back to the fact that I wasn't an incredible musician. I wasn't some guitar prodigy. I, was just, I just knew I loved music so much that I was trying to find my way in it. And so I loved playing other people's music as much as I liked writing my own. And DJing was so exciting. And uh, it was like the summer of 93 was the summer I started. I was 17. And uh, there was Robin S. Show Me Love and all this amazing club music and then all this amazing hip-hop and I and I was DJing in this in this club club USA which was this crazy like adult playground that I definitely shouldn't have been in at that age but 
I was I, I loved I loved playing music for people and watching them connect and having a good time. So for those of us who either physically or geographically were not able to be there in the '90s in New York at all these clubs that are taking off with with, with DJs in a way that had not. I mean, there's always been DJs, but not in the way that there were at starting at that time. I know this is something that you are in the process of writing a memoir about, which really, you know, to kind of help us understand, uh, you know, the very specific time period that this came out of probably wouldn't have been possible and, and hasn't continued at the same level since we got smartphones and all kinds of things that came after. But what was that scene like and why did you... How did you how did you become really like the most in demand guy on that scene? Yeah, I, it is a really interesting time because it was a time when, first of all, DJs, even back when I was doing it in the 90s, weren't like Calvin Harris and David Guetta and like on these big stages. You were respected because you made people have a good time, but you might be shoved in a corner somewhere with the turntables facing the wall and you'd have to like crane around to see if people were dancing. You certainly weren't like on the stage with people going like this to you. But I loved it because I didn't, I didn't want to be the star of the show. I just wanted to play music that I loved. And it was also an interesting time because Jay-Z and, and Puff, or then Puff Daddy, uh, was, were starting to come out in New York and discovering this downtown scene. And they were changing the... Puffy was like Gatsby. You know, he came in and just changed the entire wavelength of what New York was like at that time. So... I essentially had a literally a front row seat for my thing in the DJ booth, and it was really fun to watch New York just change in front of my eyes a little bit, like certainly the club scene. And you really went with this as far as it was humanly possible to go as a DJ. We'll just note he had kind of a puff daddy, had kind of a legendary 29th birthday party. You did that. You did Tom Cruise and Katie Holmes's wedding, Paul McCartney's wedding, even that was after you'd gotten into producing but i mean at a certain point i understand you started to have panic attacks that maybe signaled that this was the sort of the beginning of the end of djing and the beginning of something else right i think you know i never wanted to be a dj as, as a career i'd always it was something i loved doing but it always felt like a little bit of a sidetrack from making music which I, which is the thing that i probably loved the most but that but djing became successful and then all these other producers that had one time been my peers maybe at the same level people like chad and pharrell from the neptunes or or uh danger mouse or kanye or people were suddenly like stars superstars like beyond that so i just thought maybe i'm not that good at this like maybe this is not what i'm supposed to be. maybe i'll never be a successful producer and i kind of just i just I think I just, I didn't give up the reins, but I thought to myself, this might not never happen, and there's something in the power of surrender. I think I was trying so hard to have hits and have some sort of success and chase this thing, and I met Amy Winehouse at this moment that I was just like, you know what, I might never ever make any music that's commercially successful, but so I'm just going to make the stuff I really love. And that seems like a very obvious thing to say that everybody should know, but... It doesn't. You doubt yourself all the time. You look around. You want to keep up with the Joneses. And then because I met Amy at this time where I was just like, I don't care if anyone else likes this. We really like this, and let's do this. And, and that's, ironically, where, where I had my first success. 
So in order to be ready, though, to work at a high level with somebody like Amy Winehouse, there were a few other steps, learning lessons along the way in terms of producing. I mean, it seems like the first real producing opportunity you, you had was Nika Costa, Everybody Got There Something. This is a 2001 album, first, oper- first time producing something, and it was a grind. I mean, this went on for a few years, right, before you guys, before you landed at the what became the kind of the single that popped out of that, right? Yeah. Um, with Nika, you mean, with that album? Yeah, absolutely. We were working on that, and... Um you know, it was a different time in the record industry now because the record labels aren't what they used to be like. There's so much pressure to have a hit right away. Back in those days, you would let an artist develop and find their sound more. So that's what we were doing with Nika. And then we had a, a song called Like a Feather and another song, Everybody Got There Something, that it wasn't a huge success, but it, it, it resonated a little bit, and I was just happy. And just in terms of... Being an effective producer, it was on that album that you were kind of getting introduced to the the technical stuff that this is not being behind a turntable, not to in any way belittle that, but this is now getting into a, a digital age of producing that you had to get acquainted with, right? Yeah. So when I, ever since I was 18, I was still making my little beats on a sample and a drum machine, but I knew nothing about producing in the sense of like recording a band, like in the classic Quincy Jones, George Martin, the, you know, so that was really on the Nika record. That was my first, um, you know, we had Questlove. We had all these amazing musicians playing on it. And uh, I was like, what do all these mics do? Like, what, what, what's all this stuff in the studio? It was so exciting um, to learn, really, on, on the job. And we were actually still doing a, a more analog, like, we loved the sounds of the old Stevie Wonder records and the things from the 70s, so we recorded a lot of that stuff to tape. Did you find that the skills of being a DJ were actually transferable or helpful as you got more into producing? Um, you know, beyond kind of just knowing what people might like, are there other things that were valuable from DJing? Yeah, I think that most DJs that I, that I know, not just like people that go and play a club set, are like super nerdy, obsessive record. It's almost like that's your that's your university in a way that's you're studying the history of like you would if you were a legal student you go and study legal precedent like just knowing records of course it's great because as a producer it gives you things to draw from you know now the other thing is did you find as you're again pre amy winehouse as you're finding your way into this you know the next thing for instance is your first album here comes the fuzz 2003 ooey is a song that people remember from that um but i just wonder <laughs> Uh, again, are there? Did you find that you always tend to work a certain way? Do you start with a beat? Do you start with a lyric? Yeah. Do you? Now I remember your question. It's a really good question. Yeah, being a DJ is sort of a, it's kind of a double-edged sword because in some ways it's great because you have this idea of hopefully what makes people dance, but then you kind of also always got this disco ball spinning in your head that you have to know sometimes when to, when it's not doesn't need to be dancey or or happy or whatever it is, but. Yeah, the, on my first record, Here Comes a Fuzz, it was very much a DJ record. Like, I just wanted to make people dance, and it was... There's some good stuff. It's a little all over the place. I was trying to, like, you know, in 43 minutes, show every single genre ever known to man. It was a lot. <laughs> well, okay, so this brings us to that period that you started to talk about where two British artists, Lily Allen 
and Amy Winehouse, you back to back essentially are helping them to launch their careers. I mean, with Lily Allen, this is her debut, all right, still in 2006 with that same year, Back to Black with Amy Winehouse. I guess I just wonder, first of all, did you find did the fact that you were transcontinental yourself, was that, did that have anything to do with why you ended up working with these people or does it come about differently? So even, even though my first album came out and sold probably like 30 copies in America, I had that song Uwe with Nate Dogg and Ghostface Killer that was sort of a hit in England. So that was fun because I got to go to England and, and do shows there. And even though I'm English, I had never spent any real time there as a musician just going to visit my dad and so that's how I met and connected with Lily Allen and and then how I was connected with Amy Winehouse so even so that record was what what kind of did that so back to black with Amy Winehouse was obviously became this landmark that today if you look at any Rolling Stone to make it come full circle or Billboard or any of these you know the most important influential albums of the 21st century at the very least that one you know between the title track between rehab this which everybody you know these are songs that must have it must have felt like you've kind of exploded to a different level than you'd been at before but before that reception when she comes in the room and you guys go to work how quickly did it become apparent that there was something special going on there i mean there are people who i think had warned you she, you know, she's had a checkered past. She's slow. She works slowly. She could be difficult. That doesn't seem like it was your experience. No, it wasn't. When I met Amy, she was just like, I know she had been working on what was supposed to be her second album to follow up to Frank for a few years. And I know she had gone through periods of, you know, having struggling with stuff that she was so laser focused and amazing. And at that time that we met just on the stoop of my studio in, in, in New York and, the connection was sort of immediate. Like, I even just as a personality, she was so funny, and it felt like somebody I could have been friends with since high school. Like, um, and and we just started talking about music right away. And um, I just asked her what she wanted her album to sound like, and she said, "I'm not going to do well. I'll do my bad Amy accent because it's better than my accent." But it's uh, she would just be like, "You know, I want it to sound like this thing they play down at my local." And I was like, "What's that?" She and she played me the Shangri-Las. And I was like, this is cool. Like, and I had never made anything like that before, but I was so inspired by her. And she was only going to be in New York for one day, and she was flying back to London. And I said, well, I don't have anything to play you here, because sometimes a singer comes over, and you have a bunch of tracks, and you play. And I was like, I got nothing like that, but if you go home and come back tomorrow, um, maybe I'll try and come up with something. So, so I stayed up all night because I was just buzzing from the energy of her and I wanted to come up with something that was going to impress her enough to stay in New York. And I, I had the idea for the piano chords from Back to Black and I just put a little like boom, boom. Like I, I was like, that sounds like the stuff she's playing me, right? Like a kind of spooky tambourine. And, and she came back 
the next day, and I remember being so nervous. She was sitting in my studio, like right behind me, and I, I didn't want to look back to see the expression on her face because I, in case she didn't like it. And uh, and I'm playing this track, just, and I look back, and she's like, and I can't read it. And she just kind of looks up. She goes, "I love it. That's what I want my whole album to sound like." And I was like, "Cool." <laughs> and she went in the other room and changed her flight and then we stayed she stayed in for a week and then we worked on the other songs that we did but this is the i mean that's amazing in and of itself but then the whole time you took to make this album that is an all-timer was less than a week for all the songs on it i think she had spent a week uh yeah she had a lot of songs ready to go already she had them on her little uh, nylon string guitar she had wake up alone and um love is a losing game and then we wrote Back to Black. She wrote Rehab while we were there. Um, so the six songs that I did on that, it was probably a, a week. Like, And then she went to Miami and did the rest with Salam. And then we went to Brooklyn. And I recorded the tracks with the Dap Kings. Who she never even met until you did Valerie, right? Yeah. Later. This is a follow. That's like, again, the key ing- a key ingredient of this whole thing. And she didn't even meet the guys. No. I remember she... She had to go back to England, and I wanted to record um, this band. I said, there's this great band. I never worked with them before, but I was a big fan of the Sharon Jones records. And I was like, and I remember calling her in the middle of the night to play because I was so excited when the band was recording, you know, I'm no good because they're doing that. And I was like, oh, my God, we got to play it for Amy. And she just like picked up the phone in the middle of the night like, what? And I was like, listen to this. Held the phone to the speaker. Pulled it back and I was just like, eh. she'd like hung up. <laughs> um, but yeah, it was really exciting because when she got the CDs like for her album, when it finally came in before it came out, I remember her calling me up and being like, you mean to tell me there's some bloke named Binky Griptite that played <laughs> on my album? I was like, yeah, he played guitar. He's amazing. Um, so it was just wonderful when they all finally met. Uh, when she finally came back to New York and this album was in the can and maybe it just been out for two weeks and for her to meet Homer and Tommy and all these musicians who had brought these songs to life. So just on this particular topic, just a couple quick additional things Then I've got, we've got so much to cover, but I just have to ask you, as you understand it, and I would think that you're as much an authority who can give an answer to this as anybody, what does Back to Black actually mean? You go back to her and I go back to black, just like back to just infinite sadness. I think it's just like, it was just like the most dramatic thing that she could say. Because she had had a breakup, right? And he had, she's talked about this, yeah. that, that he goes back to another girlfriend, but she, I just didn't know if black means nothing or some people thought it means drugs or something. I think it's nothing. I think, you're, yeah. I think it's just like nothing and just my own, it's sadness. Yeah. You, know? you guys win... Uh, you win three Grammys for Back to Black. But in the meantime, after that album was locked is when Valerie comes out with, again, with the Dap Kings. Um, another great one where, again, it seems like, I wonder if you and she had sort of the same mission just coincidentally or whatever, but it seems like it was taking maybe mus- older music from years before and somehow making it even cooler for the present day. Was that fair to say? I guess so. I think it was so subconscious. I don't think any of us were like, 
We couldn't have been nostalgic because it's an era of music from before even both of us were born. But it's just what I always loved. Even when I started DJing, I loved I DJ because I love hip hop and I loved old Motown and funk and soul. So I, I I can't help it, and I've always got, you know, called like the retro guy or that thing. I'm like I you can't really help what you love. I'm not chasing any old things. That's just the music that moves me. So obviously, uh, terrible tragedy, 2011. She passes away. I had heard that you and she were planning to do another uh, collaboration. Is that true? I mean, we had definitely talked and we had kind of been in and out of touch. And I always hoped that we would have. But, and, you know, she was talking to Questlove about doing stuff, too. I mean, I, 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 I think we would have done stuff. But And then the other thing is that there is a movie that is, I think, in the can already, but not yet released, called Back to Black, a narrative movie with actors and all of that. I wonder if you can tease at all what you know about that and if you've been involved with that. I mean, it's all, it's about her life. Yeah. Um, I, th I've, Sam Taylor Wood is directing it and it's, and I'm sure it's going to be great. I'm not involved with it, but on the last day that they were finishing shooting in New York, cause I'm in the same studio where Amy and I wrote back to black and that stuff in New York. They just asked to come by because it was like a meaningful thing and it was, Nice to let them come in and have that moment. So in the years after that album, it's, you've talked about sort of, in a weird way, feeling a little lost might be the word, where you're chasing the sound with horns and whatever that you guys had had such success with. And I wonder, was there something that broke you out of that? What was the thing that helped you to discover the next phase of your own music? A very talented Hawaiian gentleman by the name of Bruno Mars. No, I think, so. um, yes. <laughs> actually, Bruno, because I, I worked with him on his Unorthodox Jukebox record, and we worked on um, Locked Out of Heaven and some songs of that. And I remember the first time I met him, so I, I didn't know that much about Bruno. And I, I knew some stuff. I knew I liked him, but I wasn't, honestly, like a, a, a fan yet. I, I liked some songs he had done. And uh, the first time I met with him, he's like, I want to do something you and me, but I want it to sound like absolutely nothing that anyone would expect Bruno Mars or Mark Ronson to sound like. No James Brown suits, horns, this kind of thing. And, I, and he was so sure about it and certain and, and just I was so enamored by it. I was like, oh, I love this guy. Like, and it's always so challenging. And I, one of the things I learned most from Bruno, because he's also such an amazing producer himself, is just like to always push. Like it can always be more exciting, more interesting. There can be another hook. There can be, like, don't ever go into the comfort zone, I think. So this, as you mentioned, you had the first hit with him with Locked Out of Heaven. And then a year later, you guys, as well as another collaborator of yours on that, get together for what was going to be, for it was your album, uh, Uptown Special. And there, this is, to me, I wonder what you embarked on this, thinking it was going to be, because for people who don't know, this is epitomizes eclectic, right? On the one hand, you've got the author, Michael Chabon, right, who had not done much with music prior to that, and then also a little song called Uptown Funk with Bruno and other collaborators. Just what was the, for the album overall, what was the, what was the goal? Um... It's it's funny because it is a there it, it it is quite different uptown funk to the stuff that we did with Michael Shaven, but I guess 
um, with the Michael Shaven stuff, I'm a huge fan of Steely Dan, and I think that their lyrics are so wonderful and clever. And if you ever try and write like that, it's terrible because it just sounds like you're doing some really bad, like, I don't know, Elmore Leonard, like, book. I don't know. So, um, so I asked Michael Shaven, one of my favorite authors, I just sent him a cold email. I stole it off a BCC list or something. And I just said, I know you like Steely Dan. I'm writing songs for a record. Would you like to be involved in it? And that's how it happened. And then the, the, the Bruno side, which was like mystical feel right, and Uptown Funk was just, it didn't fit maybe conceptually, but it was just undeniable because we all felt so good playing those records as well. Okay, so to set up the next question, let's just establish how huge Uptown Funk was, right? The biggest hit of the 2010s knocked Taylor Swift off the top of the Billboard Hot 100. Stayed at the top. She's of the, doing pretty good. She's done okay. She's all right. <laughs> if anyone's heard, heard of her since, yes. Uh, your song stays there for 14 weeks, longer than any song in the history of the Billboard charts up to that point, except for Mariah and Boyz II Men's One Sweet Day, which lasted two weeks longer, but number two of all time, not bad. Uh, accumulated 3.5 billion views on YouTube, 11 times platinum, record of the year, Grammy. You perform it on the Super Bowl halftime show. It doesn't get a lot bigger than that. And so I just wonder if we can use it as a case study because you've talked about the making of that was not pleasant. Right? I mean, it, w it was pleasant because it started from a, a jam, like, with my friends, Jeff Basker, Bruno, Phil, and we just had so much fun. And it was, like, just in Bruno's studio where he had, like, a much less, let's say, a much more humble studio at that moment. I'm sure he's got an amazing place now. And his drum kit was, like, shoved in a closet next to a fax machine, and Bruno's back there. And it's also, like, it was really low to the ground. And I came in there, and Bruno's basically sitting on the floor playing drums like this and we just jammed for six hours playing this silly groove like dun, 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 whatever and then we wrote these lyrics so the first night we wrote the the first verse this here that you know ice cold and then every time we tried to get back into work on it it never felt as exciting and it felt labored and like we were trying to chase something and we were like this is too good we can't ever have anything that doesn't match up to the level so sometimes we'd go in the studio together for two three days bruno is still on a world tour touring unorthodox jukebox meeting us in memphis we might go in the studio for two whole days and maybe just get two lines out of it you know julio get the stretch whatever but we were just so so this went on for about seven months and you know every, we were all kind of like have our own egos in some way so we would bicker and get into arguments no i think it sounds good no it's not good and then and then i would wait till everybody's tempers cooled down a bit like a month because it you know it was on my record i probably have more to game from it and i was like hey you guys want to get back in and remember that song you know just sweet talk everyone back into the studio and then finally some things just fell into place that just made us feel like it was there and and the and the very end was uh i remember bruno was playing the Air Canada Center in Toronto, and I went up there with a five-string bass, and like we just finished it in this three-day spell that was sort of like nobody slept, and we managed to finish the song. This is that ice cold Michelle fight for that white gold. This one for them hood girls, them good girls, straight masterpieces. Styling, violent, living it up in the city. Got chucks on with Saint Laurent. Gotta kiss myself, I'm so pretty. I'm too hot. Call the police, 
Not to gloss over. What are some of the what what are the physical effects that stressing that much over a song? Oh, and I nearly died. Oh yeah. yeah, that part. Yeah. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah. Jeff Basker, who was producing the record with me, um, he had come to. He's one of my favorite producers. He's done so much great stuff, and he's like a. He's a bossy, bossy pants. I don't want to curse <laughs> in this place. So Jeff was like trying to get me to play the guitar part and everything I was playing to Jeff, it wasn't good enough. And he was like, do it again, do it again. He's got me playing 50 takes. I'm so stressed out. I'm like, I have to hold up my end of this song. It was the hottest day of the year in London and I was wearing for some reason like very thick black clothing. <laughs> I don't know why. And wool and we went to this restaurant to take a break during lunch, and I, I, something about the heat and the pressure and all those things, I got up to go to the bathroom and I fainted and passed out, and yeah, just like, sorry, I threw up all over the bathroom, they had to pull me out, and Jeff had to walk me home, but then I got back to the studio, took a nap, and I finished the song, so, <laughs> so we got it done at least. Sacrificing for the music, absolutely. Um, last thing on that topic, when something is that giant of a hit, I think, you, I would imagine that you have to step back and say to yourself, and think about it, try, you know, objectively, try to dissect. What was it about that? Obviously, everybody, you just, there's sort of an instinct, instinctive response. But what, you know, if I guess if, any, if anyone could really pinpoint it, they would replicate it. But what, what do you think made it as popular as it was? I don't know, because even when we were finishing the song, everybody was like, ah, it's four and a half minutes long, or like putting the word funk in a title, is it a little cheesy? Like There were so many things that the label and everybody didn't think, so it was, because it didn't really sound like anything else out at the time, so nobody ever thought it was a surefire hit. All we knew is that me, Bruno, and Jeff were just so proud of it. We knew that we couldn't have made it any better than it was at that moment, so we just put it out into the world, and then it's just up to everybody else to choose whether it's a hit or not. And then, it, you know, I think it's, you know, it was the first year that, that it was out, all my friends liked it. And then it was like, the next year, like, it was my friends sending me videos of their kids. Like, it was now, like, they're like, I can't stand this song anymore, my kids. Like, but there was something about it. I think Bruno has this really infectious flow to it, so snappy that kids love it. I, I, it's hard. I, there's no way to quantify what made that song? It's just something that we're just all super proud of. So this brings us up to another major collaboration. You and Lady Gaga. You are, I guess, first, you know, just be curious how that pairing came about. But the fact it starts out with you working with her on her album, Joanne, in the middle of which, I believe, A Star is Born enters the picture. So yeah. just how, how does this get started? And then how does the introduction of Bradley Cooper and A Star is Born affect things? Because I believe, you know, everyone now, you know, Shallow is synonymous with A Star is Born, but it was actually, at one point, he wanted something off of Joanne instead, right? I, well, he just came in, I, you know, I'm such a fan of Bradley Cooper and his films, like, I really, I really love his films. I think he's a fantastic actor, all of it. So he came into the studio one day when we were working on Joanne, the the Lady Gaga's solo record that I was producing. And, um, you know, he's like a movie star. He comes in, you're kind of just like goo-goo-eye looking at Bradley Cooper. And 
we were working on this song, Joanne, at that moment, which is one of my favorite songs from that record. And uh, he didn't ask for it for Starsborn. He just said, like, oh, I'm putting together, I think he was doing a sizzle reel or showing a preview. He was like, can I use this song in that? But, but uh, I think there was always, it was always known that we were going to try and write something special and bespoke for the film. Because I read the script. It was so inspiring. It was so important to Lady Gaga, of course, because she was going to play the lead. So that's how... You know, we went in the studio and in the middle of Joanne, we sort of, I think we took a, like a few days off recording just to be like, okay, let's work on, let's see if we can get something for the Star is Born thing that you're doing. And, um, and that's how Shallow was sort of, uh, the seeds of that started. And when you were writing Shallow, did you know from the script or anything, was the plan always that it would be so integral to the plot as well, or did that evolve? No, we had no idea. We didn't even know it was going to be a duet. We didn't know anything. We just wrote this song. We were really inspired by the script. Um, Gaga has sung the entire vocal, and there was no sense that, you know, that it was going to turn into a duet or anything like that. And then when I saw the very first... And then they went on to write so many more incredible songs because we were writing so early on. I didn't even know if our song would make it. You know, I knew she was writing with all these great Nashville country writers. And like, oh, I hope our song still ends up in the film. And then I saw a really rough cut of the, of the film and I got just chilled. Like, I couldn't believe it as it starts to go and she says the tell me something boy and they're in the parking lot. And I was like, this song is part, he's written this into it and then turned it, that was Bradley's real masterstroke. Master I did to turn it then into this duet that's the story of them falling in love. And then one way that I'm sure it wasn't intentional for him that he really saved the song just being fully honest, I always, I thought the verses were always more poignant, just maybe that's my taste than the, than the chorus. And the song used to go verse, chorus, verse, chorus when it was just Lady Gaga singing it. And then when it became a duet because of how it works in the movie, it goes verse Lady Gaga, sorry, Bradley Cooper verse Gaga, then chorus. And I feel like that just made the whole structure of the song go like and so there were so many amazing things that happened from that song being in, used in the film the way it was, of course, because it's, it's such a beautiful film and a love story and how they're falling in love, and that song becomes the soundtrack of them falling in love. So it was, you know, Bradley really, like, he hooked us up. Yeah. <laughs> falling In all the good times I find myself longing Now, something I wonder, did you work at all with Bradley, who's not a singer, in the same way that with Barbie, Ryan Gosling is not really a singer. They can sing, clearly, but that's not their primary thing. Do you work with them in any way to get it as good as it can be? Well, Lady Gaga, she produced all of Bradley's vocals and performances, so that you'd have to ask her. But he, I had worked with him in the beginning of the film, and we were just like, yeah, let's just record a few covers and have some fun and find where your voice and where you're happiest, because he has a lovely falsetto. I don't know if I'm going to get in trouble for this, but he has this lovely um, uh, cover that we did of Fake Plastic Trees by Radiohead, where he's singing full-on in like the Tom York falsetto that I thought was 
so sweet that's like probably on like a hard drive somewhere. But yeah, he had a really lovely range. But I think the voice that he found for Jackson Maine to be this more grizzled country rocker was 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 better for the film. So that year of 2018 produced Stars Born, which in the early early 2019, you guys win the Oscar, the Golden Globe, all of this, you know, again, just a song that explodes. But also in 2018, you and Diplo had started your partnership and your label. Um, I guess I want to ask you, though, I mean, he, speaking of Diplo and yourself, there's also in this era, um, you know, Pharrell, Timbaland, Calvin Harris, other producers who have themselves in some cases become as well-known, as well-respected, as sought out as the, you know, vocal artists themselves. What happened to pave the way for this? Because there's always been great producers. I know you, I've heard you uh, really have always admired Quincy Jones and other, we could go through others, but like, this is a different, this is a new kind of thing, right? Yeah. I, I you know, I don't know if DJs even like, deserve to be like the way that you know like we're they're not the most exciting performers like djs when i came up are like you dj in a booth like prince should be on a stage but you know i mean i know people also really love the music of calvin harris they come out and they want to hear a show and then calvin has amazing light shows and and all this kind of thing so i guess it's you know i kind of came from the both eras i don't I'd much rather DJ in a corner with nobody looking at me and just making sure everyone's having a good time than like need to be the focus of attention. But it's just, I guess, what the people are coming out to the show, whatever they want dictates. You're, again, I'm, I'm, I wonder if it's daunting when you have a giant success like Uptown Funk or Shallow, you know, to follow that. Obviously, you've done it quite well on a number of occasions, but when when you follow something like that, like in the case of, after uh, Shallow, the next year, you've got an album which you have described as basically a sad bangers album, which couldn't be much more different than anything prior to that, where it's just, you know, going in a whole different direction. And yet you say that's one that you're as proud of, I think, as any. And if somebody, you know, a lot of times with your music, you've said somebody will say, you know, I want to hear that song. I want to hear that song. This is one where it's almost like a whole different challenge where you are happy that they might want to go listen to the whole album, right? So just, is there a game plan where you follow, like, you know, where you're trying to set a new challenge for yourself or it just kind of works out that way? I, I think that just naturally, you just always want to challenge yourself and try something different. I think for coming up being a DJ for so long, all my own records had been a bit more like Uptown Funk, Ooh Wee, Valerie, like everybody dance, you know, party. And I felt like, when I made Late Night Feelings, it was a different place in my life where I, did, where I felt a little bit more emo, whatever you want to call it. And, and uh, I wanted to try and... Because most of my favorite records that I listen to are not upbeat all the time. They go like this. And, that's, and I wanted to challenge myself to, to do something like that and, and write some music like that I would listen to. Okay, this brings us to Barbie, which um, I, I feel like you're, you would be able to speak to this uh probably better than anyone certainly better than anyone else but like your fan base must be comprised in some cases of people who only know you from one thing and don't realize that you also did something completely you know it's just very diverse body of work but i imagine a whole new group of people are entering the picture with 
with the work from Barbie. And so to begin with, um, you didn't sign up to do as much as you ended up doing on this, right? How did, what was the original outreach in terms of what they were seeking from you? Yeah, so I got a very, like, just a text from my friend George Draculius, the music supervisor, and he said, hey, you want to speak to Greta Gerwig about this new film that she's doing? And I was such a huge fan of hers and Lady Bird, and like one of my favorite movies of the past 10 years. And so I said, yeah, and she got on, and she's like, we're making Barbie. And I was like, oh, that's unusual, but I'm sure it's going to be cool if, it's, if, if you're doing it. And, and uh, she said, and we, we, there's two songs that we need. We, we got this big dance number, Barbie's best day ever, and it's going to be this big choreographed number. And then I think then we should probably have a Ken song as well, whatever that means, you know. There was no ever any talk of it being performed in the film, just meant a song that spoke to, from Ken. So they, they were really like in a, in a rush because they were starting choreography in like two weeks. So she's like, can you whip something up? I was like, whip something up? Like this, like... Uh, I just was feeling so much pressure because I had read the script. I was so in love with it. I wanted something that was going to blow them away just this, that first night with Amy Winehouse. I wanted to make sure the first thing that I sent was something that they would love. So I came up with a track that, for the song that became Dance the Night after trying two or three other things. And I sent it to Greta and she like... I always turn my phone off before I go to bed at night because I just try and not think about the internet and the world. And, but I woke up in the middle of the night to go to the bathroom and I was like, I, I had to turn my phone back on because I was so antsy and, you know, to see if she had listened to it and she liked it because they were in England. And I got all these lovely messages for her. She, she really dug it. And then they did the choreo choreography to the instrumental while then I asked Dua if she would be interested in writing the song and being on it. Who you had worked with before. Who I worked with really? before, yeah. yeah. And... Um, and, um, and then with Ken, you know, I was so excited to do the dance number, but there's just always something when you're writing for the underdog or the kind of loser character, like it just gets its hooks in you as well. Like, so even though it's, um, he has a nice ending in the film, there was just something. And I think also because I knew Ryan Gosling was playing the part, I think even while reading the script, I was picturing him saying some of these lines. I was just kind of falling more and more in love with him. And I just had the idea for this, for, for the line for this song, I'm just Ken, anywhere else I'd be a 10. And I wasn't really thinking, like, that's funny. I was thinking, that's so sad. Like, you know, I like, didn't want to write a, a funny song for him. I wanted you to feel his sort of pain. And so I sent a demo like that and wrote the rest of the song with my partner, Andrew Wyatt. And, um, and Brian heard the song, and I think, I don't know if Greta was always hoping he might sing because he's such a great singer and a performer, that, but she said she played it for him and she said that uh, he said that the song really resonated with him. And I was like, was he being sarcastic? She's like, I don't think so. So I was like, amazing. So, she's, so I started to see, she started to send me these storyboards of re, how they were reworking the last scene to put this song and he's going to perform it. And it was just, it was so exciting to be a part of something like that with filmmakers that you love and your work is they love it and and then finally the last thing that happened was she's like wait i need one more piece because we're doing this crazy dance thing in this dance space and i was like you want it to go like to 11 like you want because it's pretty crazy she's like yeah i need to go up one more and then that's when we kind of came up with the whole kennedy part but that was cool because we saw the choreography so we were really inspired we knew what was going on, on the screen so it was really fun to write that 
but it starts out as those two songs. Yeah. And then it's basically incrementally they're roping you in more and more, right? Because the Ken song's going to be two minutes, then they need seven minutes or something. Yeah, at first the Ken song was like two and a half minutes, and then Greta shows us a rough kind of assembly of the film, and people are just like, there's now a battle and all this thing, and she's just looping like the same parts. I'm like, can we try and write something, like make this move and have movements and things like that? And then I think, then she asked us to score the opening title credits, and we wrote this music for this thing that became the Lizzo song Pink. And I think at that point, she, then we started to write more and more music for the film. And then at the same time, with the soundtrack um, for all the other songs, Charlie and Nicki Minaj and, and Billy, I just really became like Robin to Greta's Batman. Well, we, she'd be on the Zoom explaining her vision for this film while other people were, while, while showing scenes to Billie Eilish and Phineas and you know, I might help translate a couple of musical terms or, you know, whatever, but it, it was just so much fun watching her. Because when you showed that video, I've never seen that before, and it was, it was kind of quite lovely because I was like, oh, we like almost made a musical in some ways, you know? Like, now those songs are so etched in my memory of those specific scenes. So um, it's, it's, it was such a cool thing to be a part and of. And, I mean, I can't think of another soundtrack that has so many people who are... M- super hot at the moment, all contributing to this. Uh, and I guess it really was, it kind of fell on you to rally everyone to do this? Yeah. So sometimes, you know, sometimes I would be producing and writing on the songs like the Sam Smith song. And sometimes, you know, on the Andrew and I did the string arrangement, the orchestral arrangement on the Billy song. But really we were just there to sometimes just like harass people about deadlines. Like, hey, can you get this in by Tuesday? Like, it was just this thing of being the executive producer of the soundtrack. I, I don't have any ego about that stuff. It's not like, I'm an artist too. It's like, I was so in love with this movie and Greta's vision. I was sort of like, whatever you need me to do, you know, I'll do it. So sometimes it was just herding cats. <laughs> well, and part of it though, I guess, the part of the way you could entice people like of this caliber to do it and all, at the same time, I guess, fuel them you know, it fueled the making of the movie still. It's, an un, I think, an unusual thing where you, you had a bit of footage to show each of them, then they come back with a musical contribution, which goes back to Greta and in some cases shapes where she's going with the ongoing filmmaking, right? Absolutely. And, and Greta was really specific with the Billy song, even though we just all knew how beautiful and emotional and how incredible it was. It comes at such an... Imp- important is like an understatement of such a special part in the, in the film in the last scene with Ruth Handler that she was like I can't just have a Billie Eilish song appear here that nobody has heard before in the film like I need you to thread this through the score and we had this kind of a 30s style waltz uh, in the scene where she first meets Ruth Handler in the kitchen and we were like you know what screw it let's just rewrite it and just use the melodies from Billie and Phineas's tune and start to really sew this through the thing, and Greta just has so much, she has such a, it's going to sound a little corny, but such a musical spirit, like, that it was just, that's, the, she knew where she wanted things, she knew the energy that she wanted, and we would just show people the scenes, and they would be so inspired, and go back and write some wonderful song, they'd send a demo in a week later. Can I just tee up a few of these for just sentence or two, whatever, about, you know, now we've all just, again, been reminded, having seen the film, now you've heard the songs, bits of them again, just um, some of the backstory, like with the song Pink with Lizzo. You 
you wearing? Dress or suit? Either way, that power looks so good on you. Hey, Barbie, I like your style. You guys were up against the clock, right? That was that almost didn't happen. Yeah. So we had an instrumental piece that we had we had written for there, which is which is the same music that you hear, but um, it was just it was long and it was a lot. It was the, obviously visually what's going on is so great. It didn't need the song, but if there was someone to welcome you into. Barbie land lyrically and it also just happened to be Lizzo like a voice that you just instantly hear and it's like a hug like so we went in the studio and I worked with Lizzo and the first day we were having such a hard time getting any vibe because Lizzo's also like well how do I put my own message into this thing as I'm watching Margot Robbie walk back and forth on the stage what do we do and then this I thought that it wasn't gonna happen and the second day we were just she just started freestyling literally like mystery science theater just making fun of and saying what was ever was happening on the screen and um and we both just started to laugh and then her producer ricky reed came in and he started to laugh too and i was like well let's just run with this you know all that like you know dolled up girls just playing chess by the pool like we're like yes it's ridiculous that they're dolled up and playing chess by the pool it should be like noted and then it was it was so much fun to give the opening of the film this, uh, this, this identity, this tongue-in-cheek, but like groovy song with Lizzo. So then we've got Dua Lipa with what we mentioned earlier, Dance the Night. I'm starting to blur in my own mind whether this was a separate music video or if this was in the film, but you've basically got everybody involved with the film also dancing along with Dua Lipa, who's, of course, in the film herself. What was the, just that one, do you listen to that and you're like, this is a standalone, this could be a standalone hit in and of itself? Um, I mean, I think a lot of the songs, Billy songs, Speed Drive, the Charlie, I mean, the Nicki song and Ice Spice, I think they all could probably be hits, but they obviously have this thing that they're etched into this movie that's so already beloved, which is great. The do with the Dewitch song, we saw the choreography and we actually had written a completely different chorus on that song. And it was cool and it sounded like a cool, like tough Dua Lipa song, like Don't Start Now. It had that energy. But we watched it back with the film of Margot Robbie and Gold Sequence spinning around and everyone smiling and laughing or like there's a disconnect, like it's not matching what it is. So Dua was like, yeah, let's rewrite. We rewrote the whole song to just feel more just sparkly and, and wonderful, like, like the scene. And all that choreography is just so funny when the Kens do the thing and, you know, Simu does the backflip. It's, it's, yeah, it's so much fun. So Billie Eilish and Phineas... Um, coming off of an Oscar as well, same category as yours. What was I made for? They came back to you with like very quick turnaround, right? Yeah. What guidance did they have? Uh, we just showed them some some. No, they actually went to the Warner Brothers lot to watch by themselves, and we after we had all had a conversation, and they were obviously big fans of Greta, and it was mutual. Um, and I remember like 
the day after the screening, Billy sent this text on this group chat that just said, like, wrote something today with, like, a wink emoji, just so, like, understated, not knowing that in a, in a week, you know, we're going to hear, like, one of the most haunting, wonderful ballads. And, um, yeah, and apparently now I've seen Phineas and her talk about it. They had some serious writer's block, and they were working on the fil- their own album for so long, and they just they didn't actually think they were going to write anything for the film, but they weren't going to tell us. They just wanted to see bits of Greta Gerwig's new film. And then they went, and they were so inspired, and, and yeah. And then we've talked about I'm just Ken and, and Ryan embracing that, but um, I guess have have you written? I'm trying to think a song. Have you been a part of a song where it's that kind of uh, winkingly funny throughout to the degree that this one is prior to that? Um, probably not. Like I I think that you know, like I said when we were writing it, we wanted you to feel. It sounds all over the top to say feel his pain, but we definitely wanted you, like, we didn't want it to be a, a you know, a parody song. Wanted to, like, because then I don't love parody songs, you know, I, I don't listen to stuff like that. But of course, it was fun to throw the occasional, like, and I'm great at doing stuff because it called for that at that point. Um, that was one of Noah Baumbach, who wrote the script with Greta, one of his ideas. He was like, okay, cool, but by the end, instead of being like, I'm just Ken, this mopey. Can it be like, I'm just Ken, like, I'm woman, hear me roar. And I was like, yeah, that's a great idea. You know, Greta and Noah always had great musical ideas the whole way. But yeah, it's so crazy to see that song and how boys, girls, everyone has sort of like made their own interpretation of that song and what it means. Right, Rorschach tests. Okay, last minute, just a few big picture things. Not many people have worked with as many other, you know, top flight talent, uh, musical artist talents as you have. Do they, do, do all or most great music artists share something in common? They're terrifying. <laughs> no. yeah. Uh, yeah, I think they all have a sort of special, that's what you're there as a producer. You're just really there to like sit in the room with someone who has a pretty special talent and hone in and just make, amplify that as much as possible. So, yeah, everybody has a little bit of a superpower. On the less, you know, happy side of things, unfortunately, a number of the people who you've crossed paths with over the years, ODB, Nate Dog, Amy, a lot of people have, have left us too soon. Is there something about the pressure cooker of being in the music business that might result in that, or is that just something that could happen anywhere? I think it's more that these people are so beloved and so special because they are maybe a little bit more emotionally raw or volatile than the rest of us, and that's what goes into their music and a record like Back to Black and what makes it so beloved. So for the same reason, those are people that also struggle in other areas of life. It's like that kind of that emotional rawness that we love in their art is also what makes tough sometimes right and then lastly um you know 
not many 48 year olds have had uh, have the have a good excuse to write a memoir like you are now doing, having been in this business since you were just a kid. As you think back on all of this for the memoir, for something like today, can you be objective at all and step outside of it and just sort of and look at it for for kind of just the amazing story that it is? I mean, we're, a lot of times your the the spotlight is given to the uh, vocal artists, but it's a pretty amazing story i think uh in and of itself your, your own yeah well i'm <laughs> you're gonna be a little disappointed because the book only goes up to 1999 <laughs> but i wanted to write i'm such a huge fan of anthony bourdain's writing and i love kitchen confidential it's one of my favorite like memoir books and the way that he writes about new york and kitchens and he's writing for the chefs and you feel every bit of grime on the surface and the energy of a new york kitchen i was like I just want to do that for DJs. I don't mean like I think I'm as good a writer as Anthony Bourdain, but that idea of like what the clubs were like at that time, the, the, the lunacy of it, the, the owners, and I love in Bourdain's book, he'll teach you a little bit about knives at the same time. It's like, it's a little bit about what goes into DJing, what makes a DJ beat matching, all these kind of things mixed with this sort of like crazy era of New York that, um, that's not really filmed or anything because it was before, you know, phones and all that. So, thank you so much for doing this. Thanks so Appreciate much. It. Thank you, everybody. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Awards Chatter. We really appreciate it and would really appreciate you taking just a minute more to subscribe to the podcast and to leave us a rating and review on your podcast app. And to follow us on Twitter and Instagram, where our handle is at Awards Chatter. On those platforms, we announce upcoming guests and provide details about special live recordings of the podcast that you can attend. Until next time, thanks again for tuning in.